For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's the word of the Lord. More to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Let's pray. Lord God, we do this morning thank you for your word. Help us to understand what it is we mean when we say that. It is a precious gift that you have given to us, Lord, that you have condescended to us in a way that we can understand what is impossible to comprehend. God, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we can understand these things that are spiritually praised. God, I pray that you would give light this morning, give light to our minds, help us to understand, to love, honor, and obey your word of truth this morning. And help me, Lord, as I preach to communicate this truth to your people for their good, for your glory, in Christ's name, amen. The title of the sermon this morning is The Word of God, because that's what these verses are talking about. We don't need to get any more clever than that. We've covered a lot already in the first four chapters of Hebrews, and there's this this flow of thought going on here we don't want to miss. So we're going to narrow in real tightly on the Word of God specifically, but but couch it in context. Because sometimes we can read the Bible and lift verses out of it and put a little bubble around them where they're safe from any interpretation but our own. Other parts of the Bible aren't allowed into that little bubble to help form and shape our opinions about what it says. We've already decided what it means to us, and we just go with that. It's harder to do in verses like these, okay? But it's something that we are all prone to do. I can do anything through a verse taken out of context. (laughs) You heard Foster a few minutes ago talk about Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That verse is, it's on t-shirts and coffee mugs and uh, football players I make up. And Christians love that verse. It's an encouraging and uplifting verse. But oftentimes, don't don't we, people take it to mean uh, that they can do anything that they set their minds to, that whatever the desires of their hearts are, that they can get that, they can accomplish that, they can have that. If If they just dream it and believe it and they work hard enough, they can have it. Because, I don't know, Jesus or something, right? But Paul's in jail, when he wrote that. And he's talking about contentment, not accomplishment. That regardless of his circumstances, whether things are going well or terrible, he has learned to be content. Because his contentment is not based on his circumstances, but on a person, Jesus. And once you realize that, that verse and many others become much more powerful. It's not a promise about getting your way. It's a promise that you won't always get your way. And even when you don't, you will still have Jesus. And you can be content. Paul knew if all he had was Jesus, 
it would be enough. And that's the same message the author of Hebrews is giving his audience here. They're having a hard time. They're struggling. They're doubting and finding out that the Christian life is hard. And the thrust of this entire book, as we continue to talk about, is that Jesus is better. Jesus is enough. And here he points them to God's word. That's how they can know. And so while verses 12 and 13 seem to be a shift from what the author has been saying, it's really just the justification for all that he's said already. He's told them not to wander off, not to give up, not to harden their hearts as the Israelites did in the wilderness. Don't grumble against God in your circumstances. Have faith. Trust him. It's only those who did, remember, as we looked at over recent weeks, it's only those who did trust him and have that faith and confidence in him, who believed his word, that entered the promised land. And it's only those who have faith who enter the eternal rest that he's been talking about. Listen to God. Listen to God. He has given you his word. So listen. And why? Because his word is living and active and powerful. And when you can't count on anything else, you can count on it. Questioning God's word is not an academic exercise. It's an exercise in unbelief. Questioning God's word is not an understanding issue. It's a salvation issue. Are you, are, are you saying if I have questions about the Bible or if I have a hard time understanding parts of it that I'm not saved? No, it's not, that's not what I'm saying at all. But there's a way that you can ask that question that sounds an awful lot like the serpent in the garden. Did God really say That's not a question asked in faith. That's a question raised against the knowledge and revelation of God that stems from pride. You can ask questions in faith. You can ask questions that stem from a desire to want to know God better, to understand his word better. Those are good questions. And here's what's great. We have the answers. He has given us his word. That's the idea here. That's what the author is saying. If you don't want to fall by the same sort of disobedience as the Israelites did in the wilderness, if you want to be sure to not make the same mistake that they did, then do what they didn't. Trust God. Trust his word. Take his word for it. You know, he hasn't left you in the dark. He has spoken, he says. We have enough to know enough. And that's the message of the sermon this morning. In God's word, we have enough to know enough. And are there some things that we don't know? Sure, sure there are. There are things we are not entitled to know because we're not God. We're not all-knowing. But here's a comfort for you. We can know enough. We, We can know everything God wants for us to know so that we can be transformed by the renewal of our minds. We have everything we need for that. Nothing is lacking. We can know God's plan for our salvation in Christ and his will for us in the world. We can know that. That's not enough for us. 
You know, really? We, we, we have all that and we have to nitpick God and ask him to show his math before we trust in him and are faithful to follow? He has given us his word and he has fitted us for understanding it by his Holy Spirit. We have enough to know enough, and so that has to be enough for us. So two points this morning I want us to consider here. The sufficiency of God's Word and the universality of God's Word. The Bible tells us everything we must believe in order to be saved and how to live in order to please God. It is sufficient for all areas of Christian life and practice. That's what we mean by sufficiency. And... The Bible is universal in its scope. It doesn't just apply to people who have uh, opted into God's email list. Okay? The whole world is on notice because there's only one true and living God who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And he has sent his son to die in the place of sinners. He died a sinner's death and didn't stay dead. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. We confessed that earlier in the Apostles' Creed. He's not in the grave anymore. He's on his throne, ruling and reigning over all creation now. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account, like it says there in verse 13. So then our two points, the sufficiency of God's word and the universality of God's word. Looking at sufficiency, there are some things we just don't know, aren't there? But there are plenty of things we do know. And one of the things we know, because God tells us, is there are some things we don't know because we're not entitled to know. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is like your go-to verse for that. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. God is allowed to keep secrets from us. That's one thing we know. Because he's revealed that too. That there are things he knows that we don't. Now here's how to deal with that. We either trust God and have faith in him or we come up with our own answers. And that all stems from pride and unbelief. Believing our way is better. Believing we understand humanity better than he does. That we are more compassionate or merciful than God. Believing the Bible and all that Jesus stuff might work for some people, just not for me. God might have a wonderful plan for my life. I just like my plans better. Here, here's one you've probably heard more than once or something like it. If God let this happen to me, he can't be real. That's not a doubt and a question that's looking for understanding. That's not a question at all. That's an unbelieving mind that's already been made up. If God doesn't do as I will, I won't trust him. The author reassures these people in that way of thinking. He assures us today, as we're reading this, that God is worthy of our trust. 
you can take his word for it. His word is personal. His word is powerful. His word is penetrating. He says, first of all, the, the word is living. That means when we encounter God's word, we encounter God. It's, it's there that we meet with him, that we learn from him, that we sit under him as our teacher, where we fellowship with him in prayer. It is the living word. And we're not just interacting with the, the thoughts of a human author. We are encountering the divine. Let that melt your face off right there, just the thought of that. We're encountering the divine when we go to him and his word. There's nowhere else any human being can do that. Try as they may. People try. You know, some people use crystals and chants and poses, and others get into occult practices where they try to peer into and reach into the spiritual realm. And they can, they do, and they will find something supernatural. It just won't be divine. It will not be holy. Y'all, I never thought I would stand in the pulpit and talk about aliens. But I'm gonna. I had a recent conversation with an unbeliever. Uh, and so in light of that and just how mainstream the subject of aliens and UFOs has been in news media and even in Congress lately, uh, it's worth mentioning briefly here. I'll... I'll might put together sort of like a short video series or something to help us think through that a little bit more carefully, a little bit more specifically how to think about that biblically, because y'all, like it or not, your apologetic, your defense of the faith has to include even that. And we're Christians. We have the truth. We don't have to stick our heads in the sand or cover our eyes and ears and pretend whatever's happening, whatever's being talked about isn't happening and isn't being talked about. We have what we need to face anything that happens in life. We don't have to dismiss claims about supernatural phenomenon because our God has created a world wherein supernatural stuff exists. We have an answer for spiritual realities. Reality includes unseen realms and forces. We, we don't have to go outside of reality to believe that. That's built into reality, the reality that God has made. It's only if we're believing the lie that all that exists is material that we get confused about things that seem to defy our understanding of physics. We, we don't know enough about the universe and physics to be able to explain away these things, but we do know enough about God and his word that we don't have to. We don't have to explain them away. We're told by God himself we're living in a reality that includes spiritual realities that we can't ignore. Again, I'm not going to go too far down that rabbit hole this morning. But the reason I bring it up at all in this sermon is because it has a lot to do with the sufficiency of God's Word, doesn't it? It has a lot to do with having enough to know enough. Being able to ask questions in faith and not doubt and knowing how to field objections to God and His Word based on some of these strange occurrences and things that people claim to have witnessed. I mentioned before I had a conversation recently with a, a, an unbeliever, a guy who was admitting thankfully, 
his, his doubts and, uh, about Jesus and the Bible. And we had a great conversation, covered a lot of ground, you know, had the opportunity to present the gospel to him and, and, and talk about Jesus six, seven different kinds of ways. But you know what he was hung up on? But what about aliens? He said, Josh, if an alien showed up right here in front of us, right now, what good would your religion be then? I said, so what? Who cares? First of all, am I to believe that the existence of that thing negates the existence of the God who has already told me that there is nothing in all of creation that he has not made? And secondly, God has already told me in his word there are such a thing as angels, and they have in, in, interacted with man on numerous occasions. And not all of them are good. About a third of them are bad. And they will do everything in their power to deceive man and distract him from the truth of God's word. That's one thing that I do know. There might be a lot I don't know. And I know there are things I don't get to know. But based on what I do know... I'm just not as impressed as you are with what you call aliens. I think maybe your reality box is just too limited, too small to include spiritual realities that you have trouble understanding. But my God's box is bigger. Scripture is sufficient, y'all. It is living and active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Don't think for a minute, if you pull it out of its sheath to use it, that it will fail you. It will not. And it's not only hard enough and sharp enough to cut through lies that seem as hard as rock, it cuts through something much harder than all of that, the human heart. It's like a surgeon's scalpel that cuts right into the very soul. It has been tested in that way and has been proven reliable. It can do that. It has the power to do that. So when you have questions, you don't have to raise them in doubt. You can raise them in faith, knowing that when you are going to the Word, you are going to God. You are going to God Himself, and you can trust that He has given you enough to know enough even about things that people are having a hard time understanding who have not consulted God first. People can believe anything when you do that. People will believe anything when they raise questions and doubt and rather than faith and don't consult God first. Believe all sorts of things, but they could believe the truth. We have it. There's a lot we can't know, but there's a lot we don't know that we can know because God has given us his word. And here's the next thing. We don't just read it. It reads us because it is living and active. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, verse 12. It doesn't just say things. It does things. It's busy in our lives, convicting us of sin, changing us, building us up, encouraging us. It gives us wisdom. It counsels us as, as to how we make decisions and, and navigate our direction in life. 
It checks our motives and it rebukes us when we're pursuing the lusts of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. When we let that soul-searching sword do its work on us, we begin to see our real intentions, our real motives. That changes us. It's sufficient to do that. All of Scripture is sufficient to do that. All of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy chapter 3. It has everything you need to live a life of godliness and service to God. It's, it's designed for that. And here's the thing. We don't, have, we don't have to go outside of Scripture in order to do those things. In fact, any source we consult outside of Scripture does not have that power. Because whether that source, uh, whatever that source is, is, it's not a living an active source. It's not able to penetrate the human heart and expose us the way that God's Word does. Now, that's not to say, right, that there aren't some common grace insights and things that we can glean from non-Christian authors and speakers and whatever else, but we can't afford to miss out on the all-powerful, all all-sufficient Word of God. You understand what I mean when I say that? Sure, there are people who aren't Christians, that have some great ideas, and, and we're able to glean much wisdom from them because they have been made in the image of God, though they deny it. And we're all living the same sort of experiences and things. We have similar life experiences. And so, sure, there's some things that we might be able to pick up on. But y'all, that doesn't have the power to change you. You see, the Word of God does. Never doubt that God's Word is powerful enough to accomplish in your life whatever is needed. Whatever is needed. If you're having trouble in your marriage, you go to God and His Word. Because listen to me, the kind of healing you need is going to humiliate you. It's going to humble you. That's what happens. And you will not be as vulnerable and as bare as you must be in, in, in order for your, your marriage to heal properly in front of another fallible man or woman, okay? You go before God, and if the man or woman counselor that you may be seeing isn't advising you to do that, you need to find another counselor, you need to find somebody who knows that you don't just need advice to get this, through this thing. You need Jesus. Someone who recognizes you require an invasive procedure that only the great physician is qualified to perform. And you know who cares more about your marriage than you do? God. If you want to see improvement there. You have to see what he says about your part in the marriage. What does he say you are responsible for in that marriage? Okay? You don't go there to see what the other person's responsible for. Good luck with that. If you don't want to do that, if you don't want to see what your part is in that, you don't want improvement. 
you don't want improvement. We can say we trust God. That's easy to say. It's harder to do. We can say we trust God in the sufficiency of his word, that it's sufficient for these things, but it's usually forged, that trust is forged in the fires of doubt and uncertainty. What we do with that, how we respond to that is what demonstrates whether we really trust him or not, when there's actually something on the line for us, right? We've all seen that, that scene in the movie where somebody's hanging off the edge of a cliff, right? Hanging on for dear life, and then somebody else is reaching down to them. They're like, grab my hand. And they're like, I can't. And they're like, no, yes, you can. Trust me. That's hard, though. You have to let go of the only thing you have to hold on to in order to grab onto something else. And you have to be convinced in your mind that is the only option. It's the only choice. It is the only way out. And you can. You can trust him. You can trust him. You can trust God in his word when you're hanging on by a thread, whether that's in your marriage, in your parenting, through sickness, some difficulty in uh, your, your job or a career move or with your school studies, your life's ambition, major life decisions. You can trust God in his word and trust that he does speak to that. And, you know, here's the thing. It's not like a magic eight ball where we just shake it up and it gives us an answer and we don't have to think about it. No, it forces us to think. It cuts deep. It doesn't just say things. It does things. It is sufficient to mold us and shape us more into the likeness of the one who redeems us. It makes us more like Jesus and nothing else can. That's the sufficiency of God's word. But it's not as though God's word only applies to Christians. God didn't make some men to glorify and enjoy him forever and then others that he made to not glorify and enjoy him forever. All of mankind, all of mankind's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Scripture is where we learn that that's the case and where we learn how to do that. But the fact that that is what God expects of his creatures made in his own image alerts us to the universality of God's word. That's the next point and the shorter one, but worth mentioning because it comes up here. We see in verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. When I was in seminary, Amanda had to go back to teaching elementary school for a little while, and we had some, a team of dear saints watch our boys for us. Diane was one of them. Um, and, and we only had half as many as we do now. But there was one lady in particular, sweet lady, I, there's no doubt in my mind that she was a believer, but she said something to me once that, that puzzled me. She had a college-age daughter that was struggling with witnessing and observing some of the sinful patterns of behavior and stuff with, with just college life, right? And the counsel that her mother gave her is, honey, they're not Christians. They're not under the same rules we are. She might have said it differently, but that was the gist, right? Not just that we should 
we should expect unbelievers to behave like unbelievers, but that they're not under the same sort of code of conduct. And I'll ask all of you this morning, you don't believe that, do you? I mean, is that true? Not according to verse 13. Not according to all of the Bible, but certainly as we're looking at these verses this morning and the nature of God's Word and its sufficiency, if that's true, if God's expectations of holiness only apply to Christians, what on earth is their judgment for? What even is sin? What, what can anybody possibly be, be guilty of? What does salvation matter if there's nothing that we're saved from? Here's the deal. We are creatures, and God is our creator. And it doesn't matter what you look like, where you came from, what culture you're a part of, or what that culture recognizes as good and evil, or what that culture acknowledges as their God. There is one God. God is our creator, and there is only one, the one true and living God, the triune God of Scripture, one being to whom we all owe our being. He has revealed himself to us in all of creation, so there's no excuse. You, know, you think of Psalm 19, Romans 1 kind of stuff, but he has revealed himself specially in his word, more clearly in his word. And while that special revelation is hidden from the unbelieving mind and can only be understood if that person is uh, redeemed and that redemption has been uh, accomplished for them by the Son, applied to them by the Holy Spirit, they've, they've been given new life, that new birth that Foster talked about in, in the, in the um, assurance of pardon this morning, then they can see that. Then they can recognize it for all that it is. But Regardless, they are born into sin and under the curse of the law because the law exists and there's no one who hasn't broken it. Well, some people don't believe that. There's a lot, you know, some people just don't believe that. They don't believe the way you do. Funny thing about truth it doesn't require you to believe in it in order for it to be true. It doesn't need your stamp of approval of its authenticity in order for it to be true. But you can and you should believe in it because it is true. The law applies to all of us. We have all broken it. God's judgment and wrath due for sin applies to all of us. All of your deeds, all of your deeds, whether good or bad, all of your thoughts, all of your dreams, all of your passions, all of your aspirations, all of your secrets, all of your regrets, all of your grudges are known by God and every one of your excuses that comes along with them. You can cover up for the world all you want, but you are naked before the eyes 
of the God who made us. And an account must be given, not to me, to him. And you're not going to be able to call witnesses. He's not going to ask for references or call for character witnesses at your, at your trial. He already knows everything. He has all the facts. Nothing can be hidden from his sight. And he has a holy standard that applies, again, universally to everyone. And you don't begin to measure up. And you will be held accountable. Well, how do we know that's true? He's told us. Listen, y'all. He's been kind enough to issue the warning Is that not grace? Is that not mercy and compassion? He's been kind enough to issue the warning. And there are only two possible choices we're left with then. We either deny the truth like the serpent in the garden, did God really say? Or to trust what he says is true and come to him by faith in his son whom he has sent to stand in the place of sinners before God, stained with your sin so that his righteousness could be yours by faith. What some people will try to do is find a third option. They want to contemplate Christ without ever coming to Christ. They want to think nice thoughts about him, right? Without ever really letting go of whatever they're holding on to in order to grab onto him. And I'm not saying that's any of you, but if the Holy Spirit is, is... telling you, making you think that might be you, it is you. You're like the Hebrews, the author is speaking to, and you need to let go. It's time. You need to take God's word for it, that he is who he says he is, and you are who he says you are. If you have doubts and you have questions, look at me, it's all right here. It's all right here. There is assurance for you. Everything you need to know, you have enough to know enough, and you can trust him. You can believe that you can trust Jesus. Believe that you can trust Jesus. Listen to me. There's nothing he's going to find out about after you coming to him. He already knows. It's not like the lid's going to be blown off on whatever it is that you've been hiding. He's seen it all along. He already knows. And he still says, come. He knows how many times you're going to mess up after you've already come to him. He knows how many times you'll need to come back. He knows you, know, you don't know how to pray. He knows what you don't understand, that you have trouble understanding completely. He knows that you have questions. But look, y'all, he's not going to leave you in the dark. He will not leave you in the dark. He has spoken. He has given you his word. And here's what it says. There is mercy for you. Grace is still available. He is never in short supply. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You're not alone in that. That's all of us. That's all of us. There is grace for you. He will have mercy on you. Believe on Jesus and be forgiven of your sins. And look, pay attention to this, okay? You don't have to go someplace else to figure out what to do after that. In Christ, you have everything you need. Christ pardons you, 
but he welcomes you. He sympathizes with you. He helps you. You don't need to feel like you need to hide your weakness and your rough spots from him or try to shore yourself up some other way. He alone is able, and he is here. This is where you find him. This is where you can find him. This word that is living and active because he is living and active. The word is personal because Jesus is personal. The word is powerful because Jesus is powerful. The word is penetrating and it's reading us while we're reading it because we have a God who knows us, who sees us, who made us, made us to know him and to be like him, to be holy. That's what the Word of God does. That's what the Word of God is. So just say, just because you don't know something doesn't mean you can't know. It might. It might mean you can't know. God has the right to keep some things hidden from us. But when we want answers, we look for them here. And when we can't find answers, we look for them here. Harder and ask for wisdom. And if we still can't find the answers that we're looking for, we trust him enough to know that we have enough to know enough. May that be satisfying. May that be enough for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we often thank you as we did at the beginning of the service for your word, and we should. But we confess sometimes we fail to see how unique it really is. We forget how powerful it really is because there are other books with print on pages that we can read. But your word is unlike anything else because you are unlike anything else. In your word, we see ourselves more clearly. We see you more clearly. And God, I pray you would allow for us here at King's Church to cherish it more and that by the power of your spirit, you would not only make yourself known to us more as individuals who make up this congregation, but that you would make yourself known to those around all of us by your power at work in us. As my brother Joseph Spate prayed earlier, do this, Lord, for your namesake, for your glory and according to the promises we find in your word. In Jesus' holy name, amen.